One key feedback the CFOs gave us was, you have to be in the flow of money. Otherwise, I'm going to buy your product and not use it more than once in a quarter. So we went back and started thinking, what can we do and how we can do it in terms of next revision of the product. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Hey folks, today I have Indus Kaitan or Kaitan, the CEO of Column. Welcome to the show, Indus. Hey, thank you for having me. Hey, the first question I have for you, could you tell me a little bit about your product and what problem does it solve? The product is pretty straightforward. If you can visualize, the sellers of software products have a lot of tools to sell more. So they have help from sales software, marketing software, customer outreach software. But the buyers of software, they do not have any way to manage this explosion of newer products. So we help buyers buy software responsibly and with a lot of thought. Nice. So, so tell me a little bit about coming up with the idea. Like, How did you come up with that idea? The idea germinated three and a half or four years ago. I was working for a company called Chargebee, where I ran growth for a year and a half. And during my time, I saw how Chargebee was adopting a lot of brand new SaaS tools, not of software products. And my team was running experiments on growth. And working and talking to the finance team, I saw how we were managing software or rather not managing it effectively. You know, back in 2018, 2019, the tools were managing software were just spreadsheets and emails. And I thought, hey, there must be a better way to do this because if my card is on file, I should know whether I've authorized it. If I have bought a product, I should know whether my team is using it. So those couple of artifacts gave me an idea that there must be a job to be done. And I quit Chargebee and started Colum in summer of 2019. And how did you fund it? Because like you quit and went full-time on this. How did you fund it? Yeah, we I quit and went full-time for close to six months. And uh, then we raised a seed round from a couple of uh, large institutional investors and few angels and then used that money to build the product. Had you raised money before that time or no? Was there your first time raising money? I had raised money before. So knew a little bit about how venture capital works, you know, what it takes to build a software business how funding rounds work and, and you know, a little bit more on that. So I had raised money for my previous startup many, many years ago. So kind of knew what it takes. So use that knowledge to raise a seed round. Nice. Let's talk a little bit about your background. So you work at Charge B, you had a company years ago. Let's go kind of like learn about yourself. What's your background? I'm a computer science major. I, I'm an undergrad from a school called Birla Institute of Technology in India. I grew up in India, did my undergrad there. So kind of a tech nerd or coder, depending on how you want to call it or characterize it. So I'm a coder. I write code and that has been my background. But then 
you know, I chanced upon entrepreneurship at my previous startup before Column, and then did it for four years. We sold that company to Oracle, and then many odd jobs in between, including the one at Chargebee. And then, you know, right now I'm running this software spend management company called Column. Nice. So walk me through the process of building Column. Like being a developer, did you code yourself? So how is the process of actually building the version one of your product? Yeah, version one, you know, we saw the problem firsthand saying buyers do not have tools to buy software. They were using spreadsheets and emails. They did not know who's paying for it. And if they're paid for it, they did not know, are people still using it? If they bought a contracted product, which means you sign a long-term 12 to 24-month agreement, where are the contracts? And do people know what's inside the contract? When is the renewal date for those? So we looked at some of these angles and started building the first version of the product. I wrote pieces of the first version. So what we do today is we look at the usage of software products in an organization. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you paid for 500 seats of Zoom for your 500 people company, you know, effectively paying, let's say, you know, $5,000 a month on a discounted pricing. Now, do you know if those 500 people are actually using Zoom? So to find that out, either you go onto the Zoom dashboard line by line, look at the usage, or you could automate this whole process. So we wrote what we call as integration platform. And part of that, I was instrumental in you know, architecting and early on writing some proof of concept. So we use the APIs of Zoom in this example to bring the data for what the usage of Zoom in your organization is across every employee. And then we summarize and tell you how much you're using Zoom or not. So early days, I wrote pieces of that particular integration layer where now we integrate with thousands of product. We bring the intelligence over in real time and tell you the details. So that was the very early days of starting of Column. So how long did it take to build version one? I understand the value that you offer, but those integrations, each of them take a lot of time, reading the API docs and connecting to each to each major SaaS. So like to build version one, how long did that take? Then we built the version one in roughly eight months. So you know, we started writing code towards the end of 2019. Some proof of concept was already there. And version one came out in I think April or May of 2020, it was, or May of 2020, it was an unfortunate time because COVID had just happened. Uh, my three-member team was in India. So I was kind of shuttling back and forth, you know, and these are the people whom we brought on board towards the end of 2019. And when COVID happened, we did not know how to function. So a little bit of a setback, but still we were able to conjure a, a version one of the products. I would say six to eight months for the first version. How many integrations there were there in the first version? Uh, probably 15 in the first version. Nice. So so how did you figure out like which ones would be the most important integrations to build? So we looked at industry data where the problem points are, which is the most abused piece of software everybody has. And when I say abused, I mean Everybody paid for it, but not using it enough. And unfortunately, many of the collaboration tools, many of the sales and marketing tools are abused to the greatest extent possible. Um, they will buy or, or organizations of you know, finance employees will buy 
a monday.com and asana a notion while already having atlassian's jira being used by the team so you could clearly see you know they are doing four or five products to do one job and so we picked some of these most frequently abused set of products and started building integrations with that now i want to highlight these are great products and my job was not to cancel them my job was to make sure customers are happy with the product so if you are not happy guess you're going to cancel it versus if you proactively reduce the size of the of the product or the number of seats you will continue to use it forever so our job was how can we be uh, how can you be as a customer the happiest user of the product rather than you have five overlapping tools and then you canceling abruptly at the end of the year makes sense so you help people figure out what are you using who is using and actually just pay what you're using for so how did you find your first few customers very simple linkedin so first version was hey so i had talked to a few so we sell to finance we sell to the office of finance we sell to companies that are between 100 to 500 employees that's our sweet spot so since we sell to the office of finance before we started writing code i validated the concept the overall thesis whether this is important with couple of cfos and these were again indirectly connected to me these were not people in the know i hate to say this but i had almost zero people in my linkedin who were cfos kind of unfortunate uh, i should have known this earlier but you know while i was trying to build a you know either an advisory or a customer base i found out i don't have any but we got recommendations and connections with from uh, friends who were in common so when the first version came out i did an outreach to 150 plus CFOs who were in my second degree of connections. Uh, very luckily, thirty or so CFOs took my call and gave me the feedback why this is good, but not something they would use right now. And that feedback was essentially, yes, I can measure usage. The two things that were happening, and this is twenty twenty, twenty twenty, the companies were not looking to. become great at buying software they had already bought software they wanted to focus on growth spend reduction or spend management was not something an initiative they were running so every cfo said yes great idea but you got to do more and not right now i was depressed for like a day or two but at the <laughs> same time got very valuable feedback saying hey let's go back to the drawing board and start you know take the feedback of what we actually have to do to build a meaningful product and one key feedback the cfos gave us was you have to be in the flow of money otherwise i'm going to buy your product and not use it more than once in a quarter so we went back and started thinking what can we do and how we can do it in terms of next revision of the product and what could you guys what did it change like what kind of features you had to add so the cfos would want to use the product so the first version of the product only focused on tracking the usage which is hey how many seats of zoom you're using and figma and jira and slack and notion and all of uh, not notion and monday.com and others what they told us you have to be in the flow of money you were, you should you have to look at how much money are we spending on these products and then tell me whether i'm using it or not just telling the usage may not be important because what if it's a free product 
what if it was bought by someone else as part of a five-year license agreement? So unless you tell me you spend $5,000 and you're using only 50% of that, that gets my attention. So how do now we went back saying, oh, how do you get the dollars captured? So there are two ways. One is we connect to their accounting systems and bring all the expense reports and expenses that, that have been submitted. And then you match up to the usage that we are bringing. The second one was a lot of these companies also do ad hoc spending. So in our ICP, 100 to 500 employees, 60-70% of spend happens via a corporate card. Only a few, at least as you go up bigger, you know, it becomes voluminous, but you know, 100, 150 employees, only a few expenses are contracted or sent via wire or ACH. So we thought, hey, why not build something which is in the flow of money? So we came up this idea saying, can we build a software purchase only corporate card? So think of this as a SaaS card or a software card where you use the card on Zoom, Jira, Figma, Atlassian, but you can't use it on an airline ticket booking site. You can't buy a Starbucks coffee. And it is locked into the universe of software products only. So we thought, hey, if that's that could be done, A, we will be authorizing these transactions in real time. Plus, you cannot buy anything which is not software. Plus, you can add rules to what you can and how much you can buy or not buy. And that's the feature we added. Nice. And so how, how this feature was received by the customers? And that's when you found product market fit. Walk me through like taking the product market back to market. Yep. So we built this and did a launch of the SaaS card in summer of 2021 to on product hunt. And we had 300 plus signups on that day. We onboarded 12 or some 12 or 14 somewhere around that number in the first week so like fully onboarded using the sas card to pay for zoom jira figma and then having a first class dashboard of all sas products that they bought so the launch was very successful and we started our journey now we did not find the product market fit yet and we'll tell you the story in a minute Nice. So uh, you use Product Hunt and you use cold email to find your first customers. And what other strategies did you use to find customers after that? We also looked at people who were complaining about software-based software usage on either forums on Reddit or on LinkedIn or Twitter. And then we started doing an outreach. We also started looking at companies that were using some of these bigger tools, like who's using Salesforce, who's using Figma, who's using Jira, and then started doing cold outreach or social outreach saying, hey, I know you're using Salesforce. How can I help reduce your unused part of Salesforce? So we're not going to cancel Salesforce, but if you're not using the 30%, can we reduce your million-dollar expenses to 700K and that 300K gets added to your bottom line? And we started doing an outreach using some of these cohorts of tools and tools users on their behalf. Nice. And at what point you knew you had product market fit? And how did you figure that out? We didn't have product market fit until February or March of last year. 
And this is after building two versions of the product, after having early users of around 20 plus early set of users on the Qualum SaaS card. The, the reason I say that because we did something that was useful, but not like solves a magical problem until that time. And, and the reason is nobody was looking to save money on software. Nobody was saying, I have short, I am short on cash. I need to optimize on my runway. Because 2020, 2021, and 2022, people were flushed with cash. Everybody wanted to grow very fast, acquire the customers, and spend whatever is necessary to acquire the customers. So until February, some of the bigger customers that we thought should have become our customers back then gave us the proverbial middle finger saying, hey, I don't need you now. You know, we have enough to worry about. We are indexed on growth. But in March, something happened. Stock market had a moment of collapse. Uh, some of the tech valuations were uh, crushed to half. DocuSign become, being the unfortunate flag bearer. And people started calling us back. They started responding to us saying, oh, looks like I need to tighten my spend. I'm gonna, I need to tighten my software spend. And fast forward now, I could say March was when we didn't find the product market fit. The product market fit happened to us. That, that's amazing. So like, it was just, wasn't about having the right product, but it was about the right moment. And when the market change, it's when your product becomes something that people really want and become more important for people because now they're like, oh, we have to save money. We're not going to be able to raise money for the last many, many months or, or we don't know how long. And that's when people are like, oh shit, how we save money? And they start coming to you. And that's also cool because like I like I like to say, in every recession, in every downturn, there's someone that does super well. And, and that's you, my friend. <laughs> and for us, the the moment was that we were ready, you know, we had something we were building. Only part was the timing was not with us until March of 2022. That's amazing. And so maybe that's going to be the one, but besides that one, what's kind of like the first oh shit moment that come to mind from the early days of your business? I think every startup is brand new. I thought, oh, I have done this. I had a little bit of a hubris in my head. And I thought, yeah, I can do fundraise, uh, I can find customers, but unless you align with what the customer's problems are, it's not a product market fit. And the oh shit was when we thought we have built a version one and we thought, hey, the CFOs whom we interviewed before we started building, they said, yes, they want to know. But when we started asking for money, they said, yes, this is important but not right now. I am doing something else or I have other you know, priorities. And that was my oh shit moment that, oh, we got to spend another six, six months, five months and build something and then go to market again. Or, you know, and that was my oh shit moment. Yeah, I think a big lesson here is like real validation only happens when you get a product in front of customers and ask them to pay for. We can do things to reduce our risks 
we can do strategies, we can do interviews, and that's all great to do it. But you're only going to have actual validation when you be like, here's a product, here's where you pay for it. And that's when you know it's validated or not. That's the insight that I get from your story. I totally agree. And I would add one nuance to it. If you're building something which is brand new or a brand new category, that's the struggle because there is no comp to go after. There's no comparable to go after. Nobody can tell you, hey, go copy that competitor or go look at that. Take his pricing model. Take his web page. For us, SaaS spend reduction, SaaS spend management or SaaS procurement, absolutely brand new category. And we didn't have anybody to look up to saying, oh, I want to be better version of that. Versus if you're creating something in a commoditized category or category that has a lot of players. Let's say, I'll take an example. Let's say you're building a brand new CRM tool. So people know what is CRM and you're building a better version and better pricing or a geography. It's easier to tell your story because the market established. If it is not, it becomes inherently difficult. When we started, it didn't, there was no competition because the market did not exist. If you fast forward now, there are 15 or 20 companies that are trying to solve similar problem like ours in different ways, in their own unique ways. So I think that's the nuance I would add. Makes total sense. So when you're creating a market, it's a little bit harder. And also one thing about that, it's funding. So how did you keep this thing going after you go to market eight months You have to go back to the drawing board, add more features. Did you keep raising money or from day one were you managing a runaway that the first raise got you where you need to be? Yeah, from day one, we have been very frugal. I have known this by studying other companies. So I am, uh, I've been a tech entrepreneur in my previous life. I've made a bunch of mistakes. I've seen other companies make that mistake where they have crashed and burned, did not go longer runway compared to what they should have done. They should have waited for the market to open up. So I thought, hey, until I have a PMF, I don't need a sales team. I don't need a marketing team. I don't need an ops person. I don't need an executive assistant. I don't need anybody who is not building a product until I have PMF. And hence, we kept the machine very, very lean. Sometimes I would get reprimanded for not expanding in many of these geographies earlier. Again, in hindsight, it was a good decision to not you know, get carried away and spend in those areas because if I don't have a product market fit, what, what would be my 500K per year VP of sales is going to do? What would be my 350K per year VP of marketing is going to do if there is nothing to sell and there are no, there's no demand? And that kind of kept us going so much so that today... We're not hiring any new product engineers or product designers. We're only hiring sales and marketing because now we know there's demand. Let's just expand those areas quickly and acquire the revenue that we want to acquire. That's a great insight. But investors, when they give founders money, they want it to move quick. They're going to pressure you to hire more and to add headcount. So how, how did you deal with that so the investors would be okay with you being frugal? I think that it's a very tricky balance. You have to convince your investors. Sometimes you have to listen to them. Sometimes you ignore them. And when I say ignore, I, I mean in a very nice and a polite way saying, yes, taken, but here's my counterpoint to this. Now, of course, 
people who have given you money, they would want to be heard. But you have to be very adept at giving a counter argument. You have to be very honest to the investors as well that, hey, I don't have a product market fit. I don't have a business yet. I don't have customers yet. The problem happens is when you are over aggressive about your own metrics, you over communicate about the positivity that is not there. And then investors expect you because, hey, you're saying that you have PMF. So why aren't you hiring your salespeople? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the investors give you or say. I think as a founder, you are in control. If you do not relay that, hey, I know this, I'm in control, I don't have product market fit, hence I am not going to hire a salesperson at this moment or a marketing person. I think that honesty and transparency, no investor is going to push you saying, no, you don't have a product market fit, go hire. Of course, they would say, you don't have a product market fit, go hire a product manager. So they could say that to you know, help you discover the product market fit. But you know, that's a much smaller problem to tackle versus expand your go-to-market because that's where the lot of money gets burned. Yeah. And I think one thing that founders have to realize is that investors are placing many bets and you are out in. And the investors, they don't mean in a bad way, but if you're crash and burn, it's not a big deal for him. Right, he he plays another fifty bets, and you're placing this one bet, and some I feel like sometimes in, you're not a first time founders, but sometimes first time founders they felt to realize that they have to be in control, and that everyone can give a device, but you have to to call your own shots, and if you do that, you're more likely to be successful. Yeah, but there's also a risk to that, right? Because investors want a lot of deployment of money. You know, they want to see progress. And if you say, hey, I don't have product market fit, then they may start losing confidence in you. So it's a it's a very tricky balance to maintain because at, at the time when they gave the money, I as an entrepreneur gave them a projection of what the world would be with you. But then eight months down the road, you say, hey, I don't have product market fit, then they'd start questioning your ability to execute and see the domain and the market. So you want to be transparent, but you want to maintain that balance saying it should not look like you have no clue. It should look like you know about this, you are in control, but the thing that is not not in control is the market movement. And if the market is not receptive to the idea, maybe it's the timing. In our case, is exactly it was exactly that. It was the timing. It's it's something that we could not manufacture, and it just happened. Yes, it is. Could you share a very smart decision that you made in the early days of your company? I think the 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 decision of keeping the team lean. I think that is definitely how we have come so long. We still have a very small product and engineering team. Majority of the the employees on board is exactly in that direction. So decisions like these are not easy. I'll tell you one, I have been recommended by my team members and also by my investors, hey, bring somebody to assist you to replicate your workload. Because sometimes I get bogged down by some operational items, not necessarily every day, probably five hours in a month. And I chose to not hire someone to do that five hour a month job. And in hindsight, those, and that's one part, but those decisions like 
things like those add, add up very quickly. Because if you get somebody on board, you have to start manufacturing work for them. So not getting extra engineers, not getting extra product managers, not having people who are just coming to do an hour of your job every month. I think going in, I knew that once I'm ready to scale, then I'm going to bring everybody to scale. I'll give you one more. We didn't have a sales team until Q4 of last year because the market was not there. The customers were not there. The demand was not there. And sometimes I used to get this comment, hey, why you do not have a sales team? And now in the hindsight, it was a great decision. But of course, I should have hired slightly early. Instead of Q4, I should have gotten somebody in Q3, like a couple of quarters earlier. But in retrospect, it felt like a great decision to wait for the most important inflection point, which is PMF, before you start scaling. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and you sometimes you're making decisions that it's in sex at the moment. And like you say, in hindsight, you see those are the right decisions. Because going back to 2020, 2021, there was so much money in the market. So nobody was being nimble. So you're making what's not sexy. So not everybody's being nimble. Every single investment, like now is the cool thing to do. So probably should start spending money now. <laughs> like do whatever the opposite of what everyone is telling you to do, right? <laughs> so, yeah. And so like, you know, like I, I, I like to, to joke, I have been running a profitable business before it was cool to run a profitable business. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I love it. I love it. So how about a blunder that you made, like a bad decision? I think a few of them. I should have taken that money when it came to me in 2021. Taking that money? Do you have opportunity to raise money? Tell me more about that. Yeah, I, I had opportunity to raise money in 2021. I should have taken it. And of course, continue to remain frugal and, and not spend that money. I think that's one blunder that I made. Second one, and this is probably, I don't know if it's right or wrong. So when I started Colum, I had a co-founder and then things didn't work out and he quit early on. Although I tried, but I did not aggressively try bringing a co-founder on board. And then of course, COVID happened few months later, and then that whole issue of having someone who could be a partner in crime never got resolved. I still get, you know, dinged for this particular thing that, hey, you don't have a co-founder. And, and many times, I hate to say this, that I, when I go into investor meetings, uh, they think something is wrong f with me if I don't have a co-founder. Makes sense. So, are you still looking for a co-founder, or at this point, you think you guys, you're gonna stay solo? I think that co-founder ship has sailed. Um, we are much farther out. We are at you know close to a million in ARR. Uh, there's a team of thirty, so it'll be very hard to have someone come in and then you know get christened as a co-founder. What I am planning to do, and I'm going to disclose this first time on a channel like yours publicly, have someone in our team, which is my partner in crime, and promote them as a partner. So instead of a co-founder, call them a partner. And, you know, equal status, equal thought process, much higher equity. That I'm still ready to do. I'm still thinking about it. Uh, I still have a, have a team. I have, you know, great set of people. I'm hoping a few of them will become partners in future. That makes total sense. So like we can get sweat equity. People that understand your business, you can compensate them 
not only with money but with equity and with partner status so they can they can help you keep although just to clarify majority of our team has stock options so they are technically partners in crime but you know formally a partner status or a, which is as good as a co-founder status that's what we're talking about that's awesome yeah i, I did saw some stats though I, i don't remember now but actually companies that are run by one founder have a higher uh, success rate you have it somewhere if you could share i would love to see because i don't know but in many meetings i get that uh, this question are you the solo founder do you have co-founders i don't know why this is important but people look at this as some kind of a negative i had a customer and he was able to to run his business out like a solo founder and then he showed me a, a slide in his pitch deck where he actually went and looked at the data and the data shows that companies that are run by a single founder are actually more likely to be successful. And so, but he had that right in, this, in his slide when he was pitching and he would answer the question before the investors would ask. I'll see if I can find it and I'll send it to you. I do think there's a, a lot of advantage to not doing stuff alone. You know, sometimes there's even that say, do you want to go fast or do you want to go further? But, but there's a data in there that companies that are run by one founder do better. I'll get the data for you. Yeah, I would love to love to take a look at that. Yeah, of course, definitely agree that in my previous startup we were three co-founders. And other experiments in life, I always had a partner in crime, but just a series of things that happen, I I am solo unfortunately. Uh, I wish I had one. That makes a lot of sense. So if you could go back in time and meet if yourself from the day that you were quitting your job as charge B to tell you something about that would prepare you to this journey what would you tell yourself if i was doing colon or if, uh, like anything you are about to start colon about to start colon you just quit your job you, you are charge b that's where you were right before yeah 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 so so you just quit your job you are about to start colon and you meet yourself so what would you tell i would focus on doing the customer discovery much more deeper than the 10 people i did with when we started writing the first version of the product this is 2019 uh, q4 i would probably reach out to 3 to 400 people and get a little bit more diverse flavor of what they want rather than a small subset of 10 that's the biggest one second colum has you know an icp or ideal customer profile which is the office of the cfo i did not realize that i, I have almost negligible cfo roles as my first degree so if i knew i was doing a finance or procurement focused product i would build a you know a first degree connect with at least thousands of them before starting out on something like colum makes a lot of sense you really have that audience built in so you you have them to build that's great so how does the company look like today you already shared that your revenue is close to a million dollars but what else can you share about where the company is today and how does the future look like for you guys yeah if you look at the macro you know saas is still i would say less than 10% of software expense in a year so, and it is growing at 18 to 20% year over year so there's a huge amount of saas that is going to get bought the tools for buying and managing saas do not exist so i think that as a company we are very well positioned to build products to help manage this onslaught that's the macro from our perspective we are a team of 26 27 right now 
um, you know, 20 people in engineering and product. So predominantly, we, you know, product focused team. And now we have started building a sales team. So we have a three people sales team in the United States and then adding another three to four people. Uh, so the goal is there's demand that has started to come for something what we have built. So use that demand to convert them into customers and get to a three to five million in ARR in the next 18 months or so. Nice. And how do you see the SaaS market talking about like the overall picture with like the stocks plumbing and other layoffs? So how do you think that's going to affect the SaaS market, the market that you play at? Yeah, unfortunately, what happened between 2020 and 2022 was not a natural phenomena for SaaS companies, right? So it was an outlier event where a lot of products were being bought and hence a lot of hiring happened, a lot of money, and that cycle fed itself in a negative way. And that's the correction we are in. If you go back to 2018, 2019, and then plot, we are at a good growth where we are in 2023, and it's going to continue at you know 15 to 18% year over year. So if you average out on a 10-year journey from, let's say, 2015 to 2025, we will grow at 15 to 20% in software. What happened in 2021, we grew at like 50 to 80% you know, on average in software. That's the correction that's going to happen. I am personally very bullish about software. If you look at how AI and machine learning is going to change how we consume everything in life and how do you deliver that AI experience or a chat GPT experience? It's through SaaS. It's through software. You know, you pay, you have a $15 per month subscription for GPT, chat GPT plus, or you have a consumption-based billing. If you're building an app yourself, that's all software. So I think more and more products going to get bought, uh, get, you know, going to get born and people will find newer nuances of it. One thing I want to highlight, there are a lot of small copycat, uh, not in a negative way, but products that are exact replica of other products, except that they look and feel different, the same pricing. I think that's where some of the consolidation will happen. That if you have 10,000 products to do sales and marketing, customers are not ready for 10,000. They will choose probably 40 or 50 of those, but not 10,000. I think that's where some of the consolidation is going to come. Awesome. Thanks for sharing your perspective on the market. And I like how you say it's just a correction. It's going up uh, as a correction over like this outlier event that we had with those the last three years. So what book do you recommend for SaaS founders? I have read several books, not specifically on SaaS. I have read books on sales acceleration, marketing acceleration, uh, the only problem for SaaS books is they become outdated by the time they're published because the hacks and the techniques kind of move on. What I would say is for any SaaS founder to read books on general sales, how do you persuade people? How do you influence people? You know, there are two or three great books on influence and persuasion you know, out there. Could you recommend one? Influence. Uh, and then Dale Carnegie's um you know, influence is the greatest one, art of influencing people, or I'm forgetting the title now in the mix of things. So Dale Carnegie has this book on influence that is kind of must read for anybody who wants to become great at selling software or selling anything in the world. I would also recommend reading history of software. So how was 
Cisco systems created? How was Microsoft created? How was Oracle created? How, how was iPod created? You know, what was Steve Jobs thinking when he created, you know, various artifacts within Apple? And the reason is twofold. It makes you a better informed person about the history because when you're engaging in a conversation with the prospect, you can quickly articulate, you know, mold your answer depending on the question if you know the history well. Uh, second, it's an icebreaker. You could say, hey, by the way, do you remember when iPod came out, they shipped CDs with an iPod. Every iPod, the first 500 or 1,000 iPods and, and the one that they gave for review to journalists and media, they shipped Steve Jobs' 25 top albums along with the an iPod in a larger box so that they can rip the CDs and then transfer <laughs> the songs on the iPod. And the reason that is important, because Steve Jobs thought about onboarding. If you just give somebody an iPod and they don't have songs in digital format, this is 2004, 2005, how would they even start experiencing iPod? So he gave them CDs to transfer the songs along with software. And these are the things that, as a founder, starts making you think, oh, nobody knows this trivia and Steve Jobs, probably you would think, is the last person to ship anything on CD. But look look at him. He did that because he, want, he knew that people cannot experience without the digital songs. That's definitely a great, great uh, idea for people so they can use. And so, so your sales process in the beginning, because you talk about some books about sale, about some icebreaker. How, how was that? It was like our founder-led? How, or, or did he use some kind of product-led? How did you do sales before you brought your own sales team in place? Yeah, so the sales was 100% founder-led. I had support from our growth person, Sanjay, who's out of India. And he helped me fine-tune list building, outreach, but pretty much it was just founder-driven. And uh, that also helped me keep the product plugged in in terms of what the customers like or do not like, like very fast iteration in terms of the product. I'll give you one example. So we didn't have a professional services team up until Q3 of last year. So what has emerged, and I'm just digressing for a second, what has emerged in the industry that CFOs are also looking for humans to help them negotiate and buy software because they don't have staffing you know finance organization in mid-sized company is you know two people and a dog that's it right so we didn't have professional services and we lost a couple of deals very large ones because we didn't have people we just have product and since i was doing the front end of the sales motion i got feedback saying oh we got to do something if not we will lose many of these deals because cfos 100% are looking for help as well in terms of people not just the product so we went back not necessarily to the drawing board but but we brought a couple of people on board that augmented the product and that was that made us win some of the deals otherwise we would have lost a lot of them that makes total sense that's why also i believe it makes so much sense for the founder to be part of the the sales at the beginning because you're getting the feedback straight from the customer. You're making the decisions. I want to do this. I don't want to do that. But like you said, that the cycle is so much faster. And as a founder, you have just so much more pull on where your product goes than anyone else, right? Yeah, absolutely. And 
once you hire a sales team, you can transfer your knowledge to them so that they ramp up faster than rather than them trying to figure out what's the PMF, who's the buyer, who's ICP, what are the objections. You know firsthand. I'll give you an example. So my team today, so we we sometimes do a in a group session where they do an outreach to the customers, they do demos while everybody's looking at them on on camera on a Zoom call. So in one of the calls, I had an opportunity to, you know, make a small small adjustment so that the calls are better. If I was not doing sales, I would have zero insights on this. For sure. So now, question for you: You have a, a software engineer degree. You're a developer yourself, but you clearly uh, a very savvy salesperson too. You understand and you learn about selling, and you you just say that was super important in taking you to PMF. So which skill do you feel like is more important for a founder? The technical background or the background in sales and in finding PMF and, and finding the right ICP? That's another term that you use and you understand that term well, but sometimes technical people doesn't even know what an ICP is. So which skills do you feel like help you more to take your company where you are today? I think as a founder, you need both. You have to switch your brain <laughs> between an engineer and a salesperson very rapidly. And I'll give you this example. So I was writing code, building the product, participating in engineering standups almost on a daily basis with my team. But the moment we started finding the product market fit and customers were calling or we were calling them, I no longer run engineering. I found a great person who leads engineering. He, he takes his own decisions. And of course, we talk almost every week. And now I'm a salesperson. And now with the sales team now coming on board with the salesperson that we have, I'm a marketing person. So Sanjay and I am running some marketing initiatives. So the head just keeps flipping from one side to the other. But I would say this, that you have to have a great product. So you have to have a product mindset. Otherwise, what are you selling to the customer? You cannot sell an empty box. There has to be a cereal, a, a bag of cereal or, or a boatload of cereal inside the box. Otherwise, it's not going to come back. It's going to throw that empty box on your face, even if you're a great person, a great salesperson. So definitely the, the product skill is foundational. It has to be there, without which your sales is going to be empty. That makes total sense. So it's not engineering, it's not sell, it's product. That's the most important skill you should have as a founder. Is that is that correct or firm? Correct or firm, <laughs> yes. Nice. Hey, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show today. A lot of uh, great content here in this, in this short conversation with you. So if people want to learn more about you and follow you, what's the best way to do? Yep, uh, Google me as Indus Khaisan, my first and last name. I'm on LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter, you know, search me with that name. And of course, Quolum is at Q-U-O-L-U-M.com. Love chatting with you. Awesome. Thank you very much again. Thanks, Phil. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit DevSquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.